I'm wanting to begin with an analogy or uh, an example that um, I, I thought of giving a different one. <laughs> uh, some of you know I'm not a big sports fan. I, I'm not. It's not that I don't like it, that I'm angry at it, or I'm upset at it, or I, I find it to be disgusting, or anything like that. I just, um, it's just never been something that I was into. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to attempt to use an example um, that. Uh, has to do with sports, but I think it, it's a fitting one because, uh, well, you'll see. <laughs> so uh, imagine it's basketball season, if that's even a thing. I, I'm not sure. Um, 64 teams competing for the national championship in college basketball. Okay, uh, you're excited for this game. You're excited for the season. Um, and imagine. You go to watch the big game, and it's a close one. And you really want your team to win. Now, how do you feel during the game? It's nerve-wracking. As the lead goes back and forth between teams, you're biting your nails, right? You're getting nervous, um, yelling at the TV. Some of you know what that's like, right? Uh, jumping up and down, you're, you're excited. You're, at the, uh, you're on the edge of your, your chair. Why? Because you don't know what's going to happen. Who's going to win? And that's what makes the, ga the game exciting, right? Exhilarating. When your team wins, now you can walk around and brag or, or maybe wear the team colors and, and go to work and show off that your team won. But it would also be disappointing if you, if you saw that your team lost, right? Well, imagine sort of a different kind of scenario. Imagine you can't watch the big game tonight because let's just say you have a, a meeting at your workplace. Fortunately, your friend has a DVR, and they're able to record the game uh, so that you can go later on tonight and watch, watch it and watch the game. So you, you don't get to see it live because you have a meeting, but you can watch it later. Uh, so the next day during work, you uh, try to avoid conversations about the game because you know that you're going to watch it that night, but it was such a big game that you can't help but hear your coworkers talk about it. And so you're trying to avoid them, but you know they're saying some stuff that's pulling you in. And so you say, okay, I'm just gonna give it a listen and see what they say. And not only do you hear that your team won, but you hear that they came back from a 15 point deficit uh, in the last five minutes and there was a buzzer beater shot, buzzer beater shot that won the game. So you hear the good news that your team won and it was uh, apparently a good game. Now, when you sit down to watch the game that night, so you go over to your friend's house, he plays the recording. How does that change your experience when you are there watching what was pre-recorded, right? What difference does it make that you know the end, right? And all your friends who've waited to watch the game with you, they're all sitting around the TV and they're biting their nails, right? And they're yelling at the TV, uh, jumping up and down. And in the second period, it seems like it's all a loss. So all your friends are discouraged because they, they don't know what you know, right? They don't know that the team that they're all rooting for is going to win, but it looks like they're losing. So they're, they're all nervous. But you, you're cool as ever. You're relaxed. You're sipping on your drink and you're enjoying that game. You're not even panicking. And they're wondering why you're not panicking. It's because you, know you know the outcome. You're able to sit cool and collected and you enjoy your popcorn right? Because you know who wins in the end. And I would say, and again, this is one of the reasons why I use this example as, a, as an analogy to the Christian faith, is that the same is true for the Christian life. Considering everything that's going on in the world today, Christians ought to be as cool as ever. <laughs> Just eating your popcorn and drinking your drink. That's it. And, you know, I, I, I always used to wonder um, why you know, growing up in church and hearing the preachings and the sermons, why it was always a thing for Christians to be joyful. I, I never liked the, so that false uh, chipper happiness that I've seen, you know, Christians try to portray. Because it, it, didn't, it didn't seem to connect well with reality, right? Life is hard. And there's a lot of problems that we all face. And so I, I would always hear in sermons or in teachings or in, even in counsel, you know, be happy and joyful. And it just didn't connect with me. Now, it didn't mean that I didn't, I didn't have faith in Christ, but I couldn't make that connection. 
But I think here we see the connection there, right? That if you know the outcome, then you can be that person just cruising, right? Cruising along through life. Because you're confident, not in yourself. It's not, um, again, the goal is not to be this uh, confident and cocky person. But the goal is to remember what the word says about, about the outcome, about, about the end. And we know how this all ends. God, in his kindness, has told us in his revelation how this thing ends. And the scriptures teach that he wins. Satan, sin, death itself are defeated, and there will come an end even to suffering. To suffer as a Christian means to suffer with the end of all things firmly fixed in your view. If you don't don't have that view, uh, eventually whatever whatever hope you have will fail, and you will be crushed under the weight of the reality uh, that this is a fallen world. You live surprised at all the suffering. But when we suffer with the end in mind, our hope burns brightly because it shows that what we get far, I'm sorry, what we get far passes anything that we give up. And in that hope, there is glory to God and joy for us, even in the midst of suffering. Any answer to the problem of suffering that does not mention the end, according to scripture, cannot be called a Christian one, right? Now, with busy schedules and deadlines and things like that, and all the other responsibilities that often call for our attention, it's easy to live as this life is all that there is. And often the distractions of life set our eyes back down here to the earth, and we get caught up in worldly affairs instead of uh, fixing our eyes upward. We may believe that there is life after death, so you can have that in the back of your mind, but we push it to the back burner until the, the idea of eternity becomes more of an insurance, poli- uh, insurance policy than anything that can help you practically. You know, so it's easy to say, I, I'm a Christian, and I, I know, you know that I'm going to heaven, and you kind of keep that in the back of your mind, and all it is practically in your life is an insurance policy. Right? It's, it, it's, in a sense, it, it's only serving as a guarantee that you're going to heaven, that you'll escape the fires of hell, but it doesn't have any practical effect in your life on how you think and how you act in, in, in the everyday, uh, you know, day-to-day um, uh, things that we face. When we lose sight of heaven, tragedy, big or small, can leave us in despair because it robs us of hope. A- and you'll see it. You can tell when a person is not meditating on the truths of, of eternal life, you can tell when a person is not thinking about the victory that God has over sin, death, and suffering. You can tell in that person that that's the case when they live a life of anxiety, when they live a life that lacks trust. What you fail to realize is that every step, every phase of your life uh, requires a big amount of trust in God. Uh, when I was a child... I had to fully depend on my parents. And those were the good old days, right? <laughs> because I didn't have to think about bills. I didn't have to think about uh, re- certain relationships and how messy uh, certain relationships can be. I didn't have all those worries. All I, all I had to worry about is whether, um, whether or not mom would buy me the toy that I wanted or uh, that I would make it on time to watch my favorite TV show, things like that. Hardly any worries. But every step of the way in your life, it requires faith. It requires dependency. When you get married, uh, there's a lot of faith involved. There's always risk there. Um, And so it requires trusting in God. When you have children, um, I always say this, me and my wife always talk about this, especially in the early years of our children. There were times when our daughter would run and like miss the corner of a table by an inch. And I'm like, oh man, she almost cracked her head open. Um, and that, that would have been a big uh, medical bill. <laughs> um, but you, you can't live, uh, you know, overprotecting your children, right? You, you have to let them be. And in a lot of, a lot of ways, um, 
we live lives that are filled with anxiety and we're living as if God isn't there. And in the same way with uh, many other phases of our life, uh, we have to remember that God has victory over, over all the things that often lead people to despair. When we lose sight of heaven, tragedy, big or small, can leave us in despair because it robs us of hope. Uh, Martin Luther understood this reality well and said that he lived as if there were only two days on his calendar, this day and that day. That's it. That's how he lived his life. This day referring to today, to today and then the one, you find, or the one you find yourself in, and then that day referring to the end, the day when we will stand before God as a judge. So he lived life today and then the judgment. That, that's how he lived his life. So what we'll do is begin by looking at the end first, and that's what we're going to start with here. And we're going to consider what God is doing with the realities of hell and heaven. And then with that in mind, uh, we can move back to this day, today, and see how those realities help us as we suffer in the today. So if you have your handout, um, we're going into the second, second part there where it says hell and the last day. Now, recently, there has been much debate over the idea of hell. So we're going to talk about hell and heaven for, for a moment. There's a lot of debate on the, over the idea of hell. Um, there are many different concepts that theologians have come up with. Um, and, and you've heard, you, I'm sure you've heard uh, different views on the concept of hell. But let's consider what the Bible says about hell. When the Bible speaks of hell, it describes it as a place with suffering so unbearable that it will be filled with weeping and gnashing of teeth. So if you have your Bible, let's look at uh, Matthew 8, 12. Matthew 8, 12. Can I get a volunteer to read just that verse? weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now it's described as a, a furnace of fire, an unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is another, another example. You see that in Matthew 13. So let, let's move forward to Matthew 13, just a couple of pages. And I'll read this. Matthew 13, verse 42. Notice how, it's, how hell is described here. It says, And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay? And then, let's go forward to Mark, chapter 9. We'll look at verse 43. Listen, listen carefully to how uh, hell is described here. It says, uh, again, it's Mark 9, 43. It says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. It's an everlasting unquenchable fire. Unquenchable it just simply means, think of being thirsty, and every time you drink water, it just doesn't, doesn't satisfy your thirst. Well, if you, if you think of it um, in relation to fire, it's a fire that just doesn't go out. It doesn't, uh, doesn't, sat, it doesn't satisfy, or it's not satisfied with what it's burning. It just keeps burning on and on. So imagine that a fire so fierce that it never goes out, ever. A place filled with a stench and a rottenness so bad that maggots never go away. You know, when you don't take out the garbage. I know, I know you all take out your garbage. But, 
when, when you don't take out your garbage, sometimes the garbage gets filled with maggots. So that's, that's the uh, example there, that there's a rottenness so bad that maggots never go away. Those in hell long for an end, but there is no end in sight. Uh, scripture describes it as a place where sins are punished, not for 10 years, not for 100 years, not even for 1,000 years, but forever. And that's why Revelation 14, you don't have to go there, but in Revelation 14, it, it speaks of the smoke of their torment rising forever and ever. A torment that never allows for rest, day or night. Yet the most terrifying aspect, I think, of all of this is the complete separation from God, of being at odds with him. And, you know, when, when I talk about the separation from God, I'm not saying that God is not present, right? I'm not saying that God, we, we read in scripture that God is everywhere. If you make your bed in Sheol, the scripture says that God is there. There isn't a place where God is not present. The, the problem with hell is that the presence of God is his wrath, right? It's his grace that gets removed from you. Um, you think about, I think it was Desmond, um, the last time he was speaking, talked about the uh, imagining a life without the, the graces of God. Think about the graces of God in your own life. You know, when you lay down at night and you're sleeping and in the middle of the night your pillow gets warm because your head has been resting on it. And, you know, I don't know if you're like me, but I, I turn it around and get the cooler side. That, that, that's so pleasant, right? It lets me rest and it feels great. That's a grace from God, right? When you eat a meal, that's a grace from God. Those things are obvious, but think about the things that are not obvious. And I'll open up the floor uh, for, for anyone who wants to chime in. What are some things that are overlooked that are the grace of God? That God is allowing you to enjoy. What are some of those things? Okay. What's that? Sleep. A good night's sleep. A good night's sleep. That's right. <laughs> I forgot what that's like. Yeah, it's been a long time. Don't feel it later on. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Mark. Um, being able to take a deep, satisfying breath. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's such a great point. Um, just we breathe and it's just happening automatically and, and taking that good deep breath. Yeah, Forrest. right we take that for granted yeah yes that's right yeah yeah that's a good point we we go to Publix we pick up food we don't even think about how it got there I mean we all the all the all the the fruit that comes from the ground God is God is uh, orchestrating that and he's, he's he's the one behind it let me get him and then I'll get him. Um, about, like, the, way, the way our bodies are so amazing the way they heal if you cut your hand you don't have to think about it yeah. It's better all by itself. That's right. Like, you know, I've been doing it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Kareem. Um, I would say hope. Um, even, you know, believe in hope. 
hard now, but it'll get better. And yeah. That's right. That's a good point. You know, there's common grace. Even even unbelievers uh, experience common grace. This is what makes hell so intense. That you know, God is blessing people who reject Him. Right? He still pumps air in their lungs, and the blood is flowing. You know, and I'm sure, of course, there's health problems and things like that. But for the most part, God is just showering unbelievers with blessing after blessing. They're enjoying it. And they even use the very breath that God pumps into their lungs to curse him. (laughs) And so God has just given them breath. And in return what they get is rejection and denial. Um, So we have to to think about the small blessings. And it's not just for the mere uh, positive thinking, right? It's not like we're saying just think positive, you know, count your blessings. Seriously, we we really need to Think about all the blessings that God is giving you and how we, in response, fail God and, and we, don't, uh, we don't always give God his due praise. Um, but moving along, we think about how God's uh, grace is then removed from you in that uh, torment that you face while you're in hell He's removing even the small levels of peace that are in your mind that you're experiencing and enjoying right now, right? That level of tranquility, things that we're taking for granted, the little things that at that moment all of a sudden becomes magnified and you realize how much you depended on the grace of God. God removes his grace and you experience the torments of hell without the the gracious hand of God. Again, a torment that never allows for rest or night. Yet the most terrifying aspect of it all is the complete separation of the grace of God in your life while you're, while you're there suffering. Of being at odds with him, of facing his wrath and knowing that you'll never be able to reconcile yourself back to God. The God who you were created to worship. You see that in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. And where there is separation from God, there's also separation from our friends and family, and loved ones. Um, like, like it was said, I, I don't know if it was the, the sermon or the uh, Sunday school class, but it was mentioned before that hell is not uh, a party with your friends. You know, it's not uh, all, the, all you hanging out in, in this um, gathering of people who get to be together and enjoy uh, the flames of hell. It's not like that at all. It is isolation. It is separation from graces like friends, family, and loved ones. No matter, no matter what Hollywood or even uh, TV shows tell us, hell is not a party where people will be reunited. Those in hell will forever be at odds with each other, constantly torn apart inside by the realization of their guilt and shame. So what does this tell us about God? What exactly is he doing here? Now, can you imagine if God looked at the, this evil world he looks at it and he sees rape, he sees murder, he sees theft, he sees abuse, he sees all the discrimination. And imagine God did nothing about it. And again, this is a response for those who think that hell is too harsh. Just think about all that's going on in the world today. Imagine God did nothing about it. Imagine he calls evil good. He says, oh, you know, that's okay. That is okay in my sight. That's okay. Um, for people to go through rape, murder. That would not be a God who is good. That would be an evil tyrant. And God is not an evil tyrant. But God is not indifferent towards sin. And hell serves as evidence of that, right? Because he is good and just, he will punish every sin. As we see in Exodus 34, he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Nothing will be swept under the carpet. He will never be the wicked judge who takes a bribe. We can't bribe him to letting us in, into heaven or um, having him allow us to escape the fires of hell. We can't bribe this judge. He doesn't show partiality. He's not a people pleaser like that. He doesn't get the verdict wrong. So in, in today's world, judges and courts fail at justice. And 
even the hot button topic of justice today. You know, everybody has their opinion on what is just in our society. <clears throat> God, his perspective, his justice is perfect and ours fails in comparison to that. Okay, if that's what God is doing on that day, on that final day, what difference does it make for us, for how we live today? What difference does it make for us in the midst of our suffering? So considering hell and the fact that God will judge the world, how does that affect us today? So imagine someone who's been sinned against. Someone uh, has undeservingly uh, done something wrong or has been uh, wronged by someone else. Maybe they've been cut off in traffic, right? You're driving and someone cuts you off and you're thinking about the wrath of God. Maybe their spouse blamed them for something that they didn't do. Maybe you feel that you're misunderstood. Someone has placed blame on you. Maybe you work in a place where the management in that workplace is accusing you of something or they're, they're judging you incorrectly about something. Maybe someone robbed you and you've never been able to recover what you lost. Maybe you've been abused by a parent or a spouse. Maybe you've lost a spouse or a child. In any of these scenarios, and you can imagine countless of others, what does the victim long for? A person who's been wronged, what does he long for? He longs for justice. He longs for justice. And that longing is a good and right thing to feel. It's an expression of being made in the image of God. God is just, and therefore his creation, his creatures, seek for justice. Um, if someone steals your wallet, there's an there's a immediate uh, sentiment or reaction that says that's not right, that's not fair. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from a standard of right and wrong that, that finds its origin in God. And we're made in that image, and therefore we seek justice as well. The problem is that vengeance was never meant to be a burden that you were designed to carry. It's too heavy, which is why when someone wrongs you, you can spend days and, and nights just thinking about it. And it's a heavy load. When someone wrongs you, you can't sleep. You replay the incident in your head and you imagine yourself you know, fighting back and taking vengeance against that person that wronged you. It's a, it's a load that's too heavy for you to carry. When you live as if vengeance is upon you, vengeance was up to you, the desire for justice can consume you. Which is, by the way, uh, why there's all sorts of rioting in this world. There's all sorts of protests in this world. Because we, we take upon these things on ourselves. We don't wait or we don't uh, leave it on God for him to... Uh, bring out the justice that is righteous and true. When, we, when, you live, when you live as if vengeance is upon you, the desire for justice can consume you. You can't forgive the person because if you do, he might get away with it. And so anger and resentment starts to grow inside you until, until you're left bitter. To those who find themselves suffering under this burden, God mercifully comes along and offers to take it off your shoulders and to carry it for you. When someone wrongs you, of course you feel it, it hurts for a moment, but you have to get it off your back. And the way to get it off your back is not to attack that person. That's not a Christian virtue, right? To, to fight back in that way. The scriptures teach that you have to wait for the wrath of God. He'll take care of that situation. Even the smallest, thing, the smallest thing in your life that seems very insignificant, like someone uh, uh, said something in the wrong way to you. <laughs> You know, there's sin there, and, and you could acknowledge that, and you can say, you know, the way that that person spoke to me was very, just very wrong. You know, something as small as that, God will make right in, in the last day, and, and that should bring relief, right? Christians are people who don't walk around with vengeance in their heart. Christians are people who don't walk around bitter. Um, and the same thing can happen even within the community, or the church community, when you're... Um, when you have those relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, it's easy to see something that they say as disrespectful. Then you go home and you and your wife are, you know, talking about how disrespectful this person was at the church when they said this and that. 
but you, you were not meant to carry that and to hold that, but you were meant to give that to God and allow him to uh, settle those matters. Those things are too heavy for you to carry, and you, weren't, you, you, you were not uh, intended to do that. We read in Romans 12. You don't have to turn to it. I'll read it. It says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with anyone. Or, excuse me, with everyone. What does that mean? That means that, uh, well, a lot of of people ask, well, what if I, I... what if I've been trying to reconcile with this person from my, from my past uh, and they don't want to reconcile? They don't want to fix those terms. That's okay. The scripture says, as much as it's possible, as much as it depends on you, do your part to seek out reconciliation. Uh, when it comes to things like vengeance and uh, injustices, and you, you can't solve that, that issue, you can lay it before God and God will resolve that. It is God's job to avenge. It's not our job to, to avenge. We can trust God to make right every wrong, to provide justice in every situation. God is better at getting vengeance than we are. You know, um, I just remember those movies where, um, it just is the first thing that came to my mind as I read this, where um, in a romantic relationship, the man cheats on the girl and so she's cool about it. It's whatever. She lets him go. And then the next day she's at his car lighting up matches, <laughs> ready to blow up his car. And, and, and you know, and she destroys his property. And that was, that was her way of avenging. Uh, um, so if you break up, just don't, don't, don't blow up his car. God is much better at getting vengeance as we are. He is accurate. He will give the person their due penalty. We have a tendency to overreact. We have a tendency to be violent. We have that tendency to, you know, in, in pursuing justice, we pass justice and then we then are guilty of all kinds of other crimes. When we think we can achieve proper and true vengeance and proper and true justice, we end up swinging the other way and we, we don't achieve true justice we achieve something else. Again, those who have wronged you will answer to God for it and they won't get away with it. One day, on that day, they will stand before God and answer to him. And in this life, they refuse to repent. And if they do that, they will drink the cup of God's wrath. So when I see the biblical picture of hell, I can trust God to avenge. More than that, I can let go of that bitterness and that anger and that resentment. Instead of being overcome by evil, I can now overcome evil by doing good to that person. When I see hell for what it is, according to scripture, I don't, I don't want to wish that on my worst enemy, right? that everlasting uh, fire, that eternal torment. But now that Christ has come, God can be absolutely just and still forgive sinners. He can, as Paul writes in Romans 3, be just and be the one who justifies. Um, and we know that by virtue of, of the gospel. That if God doesn't give that person uh, vengeance and wrath, then he may give them Christ. But the vengeance and wrath still has to be paid for. The only difference is he doesn't apply that vengeance and wrath on that person. He places it on Christ. And he did place it on Christ. But, but regardless of, of the situation, whether that person comes to Christ or not, vengeance uh, takes place. Justice takes place. Either the person will pay for it or Jesus will intervene and, and take it upon himself. But either way, justice is served. Uh, and we can rest in that. We don't have to carry that weight upon us and, and live lives of anger and bitterness. Let's talk about that future day. And we, we talked about hell. Let's talk about the future day. And let's talk about heaven and how that affects us in the now. So as we meditate on heaven, how does that um, help us in our current day-to-day situation?
Uh, and you'll see on your handout that is the next point. Point four, uh, heaven and the last day. On that day, the day of judgment, Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the unrighteous. So we need to consider not only what the Bible says about hell, but what it says about heaven. When the Bible speaks of heaven, it describes it as a place where there's no more suffering. And so we read in Revelation 21, it says, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the older, excuse me, for the old order of things has passed away. No longer will there be things like headaches, cancer, limbs that do not work properly, uh, eyes that don't see. All, all of that will be fixed. All of that will be healed. There'll be no more sadness, no more pain, no more funerals. We'll be given new bodies that will never break down, never wear out, never get sick. There'll be no more, no more sin to fight against. There'll be, imagine that, no more sin to, to fight against. There'll be a, a sense of freedom where you can, you can rest from that ongoing battle against the flesh. That, that stops. No more guilt or shame from our broken past. We will be with our friends there. And we will be with our family there. Right? Unlike hell. We will be there in community with the people of God. We will be with friends and family who have trusted in Christ and our relationships will be without envy, rivalry, or competition. So think about that. As you share your life with other believers in Christ, even among godly churches, there still exists envy and rivalry and competition and in heaven that all goes away there'll be this authenticity in the relationships that are there there'll be a peace everyone is themselves no one has to put up a front Um, there's this wonderful rest that everyone will experience there'll be perfect love in each person caring for each other and, and able to trust completely without worrying about someone deceiving you those are just wonderful wonderful benefits of being in the presence of God in that final state. And best of all, heaven is described as a place where we will dwell with God and be perfectly happy, satisfied in Him. It's impossible to put to words how wonderful that's going to be. Right? Imagine the best pleasure you can imagine in life. God is infinitely more pleasurable or better. Every good in this life is a signpost to the ultimate good of God Himself. And that's an interesting thing to meditate on we got 10 minutes. An interesting thing to meditate on. Um, So when you eat a good meal, right, or you eat something delicious, um, you you think of the God that provided that for you. Think of the God that is allowing you to enjoy that. Uh, If God was only interested in giving you things to keep you alive, right? He was minimalistic in that, in that way, where everything is just functional. So you eat food just so that you can survive. Almost like walking around with an IV. All, you, all, you, all, all food is good for is just to, to eat it and be nourished and you move on. But we see that God has given us things to enjoy. He's given us taste buds for a reason. He didn't have to give us taste buds. He could have... Uh, uh, just allow us to eat and not enjoy the food that we eat. He's, allow, he's allowed us to observe and enjoy things that are flavorful. Same thing with beauty and art, all these great things. We can enjoy it, but they were meant to be pointers of the goodness and beauty of God himself. It, it wasn't, you, you, you were not meant to eat a meal and say, wow, this, this food is good. Praise you, chef. Thank you, chef. You're a genius chef out there. And that, that's where it stops. Um, you were, that was meant to say, wow, God is creative. God is filled with goodness and grace. He's allowing me to enjoy this meal, considering what a sinner I am. 
He's allowing me to enjoy it. He's allowing me to enjoy beauty and, and all the wonderful things that display God's goodness and beauty. All those things uh, are pointers to God. And so when you think about the good that you taste here, those are little hints that God throws at you so you can say, hey, if that was good, wait till you are in my presence where, where, in which all those good things, I am the source of it all. Um, if that's good, imagine intensifying that by a hundred uh, because that's just food that goes away. Every, all these things that we enjoy are temporal. We will be in an eternity with a God in whom all goodness and beauty um, comes from him. So we're, we're going to be at the presence of the, of the true beautiful one and the true good one. Um, and those are, those are things to meditate on. As you, as you think about your present state, and you say, man, I'm suffering a lot, but we're, we're, regardless of my suffering, I'm on my way closer and closer to that source of goodness and beauty that gives all the temporal things its goodness and beauty. Um, in other words, it only gets better uh, from here on out. We will be dwelling with God in perfect happiness, satisfied in him, um, the best pleasure that you can imagine now, God is infinitely better. Every good in this life is only a, signpo- a signpost to the ultimate good of God, of God himself. He is what is amazing about heaven. If heaven was just about avoiding hell, just about singing songs and sitting on the clouds, all those comforts would eventually become boring. But we will never plumb the depths of the beauty, majesty, and wonder of who God is. He will take our breath away again and again. And again, and it never stops. We'll forever be enjoying God, the true source of all goodness and beauty. What does heaven teach us about God? What is he up to? Well, if hell shows us the goodness and justice of God, heaven shows us the grace and mercy of God. Heaven is not what any of us deserve, but it is real and it is, enjo- it is enjoyment beyond our imagination. So if this is true about God, what difference does it make for us in the midst of suffering? How should it affect us in the today? Well, it leads us to the, the next point. Um, heaven and today. How does it affect us today? It reminds us that there is an end to suffering. It will not go on forever. If you take heaven out of the equation, you, you don't have any hope. Um, and, and I would say if you spend enough time with a person who doesn't love God, doesn't acknowledge God, an atheist or someone like that, you'll start to sense the disparities. When they, when they go through trials and when they go through hardship, they don't have what we have. They don't have that hope. So Christians suffer very differently from the way that the world suffers, the unbelieving world. The unbelieving world suffers, and when they suffer, they think that that's it. Um, they see life as a gamble. That if they don't pay their bills on time, or if they don't make ends meet, that they, they don't have any kind of hope behind that, that God would somehow provide. They don't have that hope. Um, it, it, it makes sense that the world is so medicated as, as, it is, as they are. Um, and again, this is not a shot at medication. All I'm saying is that those who understand the reality that suffering will soon end, anxiety looks very different uh, for Christians. Uh, we, we, we don't uh, suffer in the same way that the unbelieving world suffers. We have hope. We, we can go through the same trials as the unbelieving world, but our, our outlook, our reaction to those uh, trials has to be different has to be different. And the way that you get there, the way that you become different, the way that you truly understand how to suffer is by filling your mind with the truths of, of Scripture, filling your mind with the truth about what is to come, the hope that we have in heaven. Ever since sin entered the picture, our bodies have groaned under the weight of aging, of breaking down, of getting sick. But the hope that we have is that these bodies are only temporary. And in the new heavens and the new earth, our bodies will be made new. You see that in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, where it says, but our citizenship is in heaven, 
and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the, pow- by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Uh, anyone know uh, Joni Erickson Tata? You guys know who that is? Yeah. Some of you may or may not know um, who she is. But she suffered, a quadri- she, she suffered as a quadriplegic uh, ever since 1967. Uh, and she explains how this crucial hope Uh, how crucial having this hope is even in the midst of her own suffering. And I want to read a quote of something that she wrote um, pertaining to her own, you know, bodily um, suffering that she's she's gone through. This is her quote. It says, I still can hardly believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, um, atrophied muscles, I think that's how you pronounce that. Atrophied? Thank you, sir. Atrophied muscles. Gnarled knees and no feeling from the shoulders down. Will one day have a new body. Light, bright, and clothed in righteousness. Powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives some spinal cord injured person like me? Or someone with uh, cerebral... I I can't pronounce it. Cerebral palsy? Palsy, palsy. Okay. Can you imagine someone with those, with those uh, bodily failures? Can you imagine the hope that this brings to the brain injured, or someone who has multi- multiple sclerosis? Imagine the hope this gives someone who is manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies. No other philosophy promises new hearts, even. No other philosophy promises new minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. So I'll end with this. Regardless of what area you may be suffering in, whether it be um, a disease or uh, some sort of bodily dysfunction, even the ones that are in the mind, the, the, the ones that seem so hard to reach, that even psychologists can't seem to solve that issue. We, as Christians, have hope that God will one day restore those, those things. Do Christians suffer bodily issues? Yes. Do we suffer through depression? Sometimes. Um, some of the, great, the greatest pastors and theologians have gone through some dark times in the soul. But we go through these things as a people with hope. We um, we don't despair in the way that the world despairs. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18, For in this light momentary affliction, it is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul points us to that hope. A few suggestions on how we, we can get through the, the temporal sufferings in light of what we know about the future. Number one, read God's word. There's a battle between the truth of God and what the world wants to feed you. Um, the world wants to tell you that there is no hope in certain areas of, of your life. Uh, there's no hope in... in um, the things that we mentioned, but the scriptures teaches about the great hope that is to come. So meditating on God's word, meditating on revelation, uh, the Psalms, specifically Psalm 2, where scripture says that the Lord laughs and scoffs at those seeking to derail his program. But we know that our future is certain. We don't have to uh, despair like the rest of the world. We need to pray. We need to pray. If, if you were to spend more of your time in prayer, marking those hours in your, in your day and saying, this is the time for me to pray, keeping those short accounts with God, if your life was filled with prayer, you would be that person that I mentioned at the beginning, eating popcorn as you live, watching uh, the chaos going around you. You would be much more tranquil. 
and not because this is some sort of uh, spiritual exercise that allows you to be at peace like uh, some sort of Buddhist practice or anything like that. It's simply because you are in communion with God in that way, that you're constantly filling your mind and your heart with the truths of God. And because of truth, this is why you can be at peace in the midst of the suffering. Praying for a heart of wisdom on how to number your days rightly, examining your schedule, learning how to trim down some of, some of your busy life and making more room for prayer. Uh, it, it may seem like a badge of honor to some people to be a busybody. You say, I'm, I'm busy. You know? This is where you take your pride in. Whereas opening your schedule up and allowing for more time in prayer will allow you to meditate on these truths and, and be in tune with God as you, as you live in this chaotic world. Uh, things to read. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, read that. Just read that sermon by Jonathan Edwards. Write it down. Uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Just read it and allow it to sober you up and to see what really matters um, as you go through this life. Uh, singing hymns, singing the Psalms, um, getting you in tune with God's Word and the hope that we have in God. I'll end with that. Um, I could take one. A question, if there's a question or a comment, one or two. All right. Let's ask God to help us with this, uh, with this uh, task of uh, seeking him for the peace that we need in, in, the, in this dark world. Father, we thank you that you've allowed us to uh, go through this topic. Help us, Lord, to depend on you, to trust in your word, and to remember that you will bring justice, and we see that in the, in the uh, promises that you, we, we read in Scripture, that you will bring justice to those who um, think that they are escaping your wrath. Father, we know that you will make all things right. We also have the hope of heaven that you will restore, and restore creation. Um, you fix every wrong, and the hope that we will be with you for eternity. So we thank you for this great, great hope. Help us to live consistent with it. We thank you and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.